Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. It started with a cough. Then came the sore throat and the fever, which burned hotter and hotter. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. The pain radiated out from her lower back to her entire body, every muscle and joint ached. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. She couldn't leave the bed, but sleep eluded her. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Fatigue flattened her. She struggled even to lift her head from the pillow. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. She was parched. 
her thirst raged, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Death had never felt so near. You lay me in the dust of death. She could do little more than moan. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? When they took her to the hospital, her family couldn't join her, and even the doctors and nurses had to limit their visits, leaving her frightened and alone. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. As the days stretched on, her weight dropped precipitously. I can count all my bones. It felt like this virus was consuming her from the inside out. Save me from the mouth of the lion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had built this business himself, and now he was helplessly watching it crumble around him as his savings disappeared like sand in an hourglass. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. The bills were adding up, each a yawning mouth demanding to be filled. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He would call on employment, sometimes a hundred times a day, but no one answered, and there is none to help. Then, to make ends meet, he began selling his possessions. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Finally, after driving past the food bank for a week, he joined the, lines of the line of cars that stretched down the street. He knew there was nothing wrong with it, but he struggled with feeling shame that he was unable to provide for his family. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. In fact, his psychological struggle the constant anxiety and frustration haunted him day and night. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. He didn't know how much longer he could endure. Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The police kept showing up. They had him on the ground. They were on top of him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts, he groaned. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. I need some water or something, please, please. My strength, it's dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. They're gonna kill me, man. A company of evildoers encircles me. Don't kill me, deliver my soul from the sword. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Mama, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Did his life matter? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He stood alone, forsaken by even his closest friends. Trouble is near, and there is none to help. Those in power, those responsible for protecting justice, treated him with contempt and mocked him. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The soldiers spit on him and beat him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They laid him on the wood and drove nails through his body. They have pierced my hands and feet. Four soldiers laid claim to his clothing. They divide my garments among them, and for my, cast, my clothing they cast lots. Hanging there, each breath was a battle, pain, exhaustion. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. A crowd gathered for the spectacle. They stare and gloat over me. As he hung in agony, passers-by derided him, shaking their heads. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. The religious leaders joined in. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Even the thieves, struggling for breath beside him, added their voices to the taunting for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. A thirsty cry rattled from his throat, and they gave him something to drink. My tongue sticks to my jaws. In anguish, he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I recently heard someone say, 2020 equals 1918 plus 1929 plus 1968. A global pandemic, an economic recession, maybe even a depression, and protests and riots over racism and inequality. And it's only June. How are you doing with all of this? I'll be honest. Even though those issues have had at most a glancing blow on my life, I'm still struggling. Half of the time, I'm overcome with anxiety. Will I get sick if I leave the house, if I don't wear this mask, if I don't wash my hands enough? Will my parents get sick and die alone in a hospital without me able to see them? Will I be able to keep my job and provide for my family? What can our country do? What can I possibly do to address centuries of racism and inequality? 
But the other half of the time, I'm emotionally numb. I know I should care about people who are getting sick and dying of the coronavirus, but I don't personally know anyone who has had it. And it's been going on for months now. I really want to get on with my life. The same goes for the economic devastation that has followed in the pandemic's wake. I just can't think about it anymore. It's too much. And the protests. It's easier to criticize the looters or the slogans than it is to try to understand and connect emotionally with the pain that is inspiring them. As different as these two responses are, anxiety and apathy, they somehow coexist in my heart. They both lead from opposite directions to the same conclusion, separation from those who suffer. When I'm anxious, the suffering of others frightens me. It reminds me that it could happen to me. If that young, healthy guy can die of COVID-19, then couldn't I? If that professor can lose his job, then couldn't I? If some will have to make significant sacrifices to make this nation more just, then why shouldn't I? To free myself from this anxiety, I have to protect myself from these questions. And one way to do that is to put those who are suffering in a different category than me. Ah, but I'm better at social distancing. Ah, but my university is in a far stronger financial position, and plus, I've accomplished more in my career. Ah, but I haven't consciously done anything to make this nation unjust. This way, legalism lies. At its worst, this apathy might even inspire me to attack those who are suffering, to blame the victim, to ensure that they are in that different moral category than I am. And in so jo doing, join the mockers in the psalm. If you can join us tomorrow night, that's, what I'll, that, uh, that's one of the things that I'll be arguing that Job's friends do to him. They put him in a different category to protect themselves. But there's another way to protect yourself from the anxiety that the suffering of others causes, and that is just to ignore it altogether. And both of these protection mechanisms contribute to my apathy. And then the apathy reinforces those protection measures. It's kind of a vicious cycle. And that's why, unless you get shaken out of that cycle by facing the suffering yourself, apathy is where you're likely to end up. The distance that apathy puts between you and those who suffer is actually worse than that caused by anxiety, because at least with anxiety, you recognize that others are really suffering. But with apathy, you can't even be bothered. Now, I'm no psychologist, but I think that both of these responses are perfectly natural. But what if, like me, you don't feel that they're right? What if you want to break out of them to follow the biblical command to mourn with those who mourn? How do you do that? It's not easy. But here's a good place to start. Lament. One of the gifts of biblical lament is its ability to train the hearts of those who have been spared to enter into the suffering of others. So if you feel, like me, confused and powerless right now, that's a good place to start. You read those laments with those situations of suffering in mind, and you will begin to feel the pain that they describe. 
We tend to domesticate the laments in the Bible. We read them flatly. But if instead of doing that, you cry them out, then you will see that they will touch you. They will transform your heart. And it won't be comfortable, as you likely didn't feel very comfortable when I was reading Psalm 22 earlier. But it's in those moments when Scripture disturbs us that we know that we are actually encountering something real, something outside of ourselves, that our faith is not just our own wish fulfillment, our personal imagination of the way we think the world should be. And it's in those moments that we have the potential to grow the most spiritually. As C.S. Lewis writes in in The Weight of Glory, If our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need to know. Laments are the spray thrown up by the white water rapids of the river of suffering and brokenness that flows from the sin in the garden. Let me just pause here and say that this metaphor, which I'm about to explore, was inspired by your church's staff page, which shows your pastors whitewater rafting and is just about the most Jason D's thing that I have ever seen. And now I hear that you have a trip planning up, so um, planned to go whitewater rafting as a church. So you can continue to think about um, the laments as you go on that trip. But when we pray the laments, we step into that river of suffering. We feel the biting cold splashing onto our souls. We feel the chaos and the lack of control. And that will motivate us to prayer and to action. As N.T. Wright recently wrote, as the spirit laments within us, so we become even in our self-isolation, small shrines where the presence and healing love of God can dwell. But some of us, we don't have the privilege of standing on the banks of that river and choosing whether we want to ride on those rapids. Some of us have been pulled under by an irresistible current of suffering. You don't need laments to pull you further down. You need something to hold on to a log, a life raft, an oar, anything to keep your head above the waves. And here's the amazing thing about the laments. They can do that too. By reaching into and reflecting our suffering, they provide us a means of moving through it, of surviving it. But how? How do they do that? Well, first, they put our pain into words. They encourage us to express our experience of pain, even of divine absence, with honesty and authenticity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' reliance on scriptural lament in the midst of his suffering is an endorsement of lament for us all. Second, they confront us with the reality of who God is in the midst of pain. The psalmists frequently remind themselves and God of his revealed character and past saving action. We see this in this psalm. Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. The laments encourage us to affirm our faith even as we see it challenged. To start, my God, my God, even if we proceed to ask, why have you forsaken me? Third, the laments welcome us into a broader community of suffering. When we suffer, like the author of Psalm 22, we tend to feel isolated. Our suffering feels so intense to us that it's difficult to imagine anyone else relating to it. But the laments remind us that we are never alone in our suffering. Others have struggled in similar ways. In fact, fourth, as Jesus quotes the laments throughout his ministry, as he physically embodies their words in his own suffering, God himself joins us in our suffering. As Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We often speak of Jesus as the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect king, fulfilling all of those roles from the Old Testament, but he is also the perfect sufferer, the perfect lamenter. As Michael Vrogop writes in his helpful book on lament called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Jesus lived a life of lament. He knows the sorrows of injustice, hypocrisy, false accusations, physical weakness, temptations, betrayal, and feeling abandoned. That roiling river of suffering that flows through the biblical laments and across history, that river that is engulfing our nation right now, which drenches us all at some point in our lives, Jesus dives into that river and it swallows him completely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that isn't the end of Jesus' story. And it's also not the end of Psalm 22. And it doesn't have to be the end of the suffering that you may be facing right now. Because when Jesus was swallowed up in suffering, God swallowed up suffering itself. This is what Isaiah promised. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, will take, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Laments like Psalm 22 affirm that that river of suffering is heading somewhere. It flows through the death and resurrection of Christ into the ocean of God's abundant grace. And so the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 point to Christ's suffering on the cross. And because of the victory over sin and death there, we can read on in the psalm. But before we do, I want to suggest a slight tweak to the ESV translation. It's also there in the NIV in verse 21. So the, the translation here doesn't follow the order of the Hebrew words. And that's not usually a big deal. But in this case, it obscures the drama of this incredible turning point in the psalm. 
Probably because of the change of word order, the ESV also takes some liberty with the translation of the crucial verb in the second half of that verse, which is better translated answer than rescue. So if we follow the Hebrew, we should read verse 21 this way. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. And that's significant for two reasons. First, over the course of the psalm, the description of the threat to the psalmist has become increasingly intense as it has been concentrated into smaller and smaller spaces. The camera, so to speak, is zooming in on the psalmist's suffering over the course of the first 21 verses. It starts in verses 6 to 8 with the mocking of the people, but by the time we get to verse 21, it's the sharp teeth in the lion's mouth, the points on the horns of the oxen, which are ready to tear the psalmist apart. And it's right at this moment when the psalmist's plight is most desperate, his cries most urgent, when seemingly out of nowhere, the distant God speaks. He answers the psalmist's cries, and that changes everything. Second, God's answer here, if we understand it as an answer, reminds us that the psalmist has been making requests all along. He hasn't just been complaining, just venting his feelings. Everything he says or groans or screams in these first 21 verses is intended to motivate God to act on his behalf. Because the psalmist has faith that God is good enough and powerful enough to save him. And he knows he has nowhere else to turn. As he says in verse 21, in, in verse 2, he needs God to answer. So he describes his agony because he knows that when God hears of it, he will care. And when he praises God as holy, he's reminding him that God cannot allow the wicked to triumph. When he describes God's past deliverance of his people, there is an implicit accusation, but why not me? When he describes the way the people mock him for trusting in God for deliverance, he is suggesting that God is being humiliated with him. When he describes God's giving him life and watching over him from the womb, he's asking God why he would stop now. His suffering and God's reputation as a good, just, and holy God are intertwined with one another. He is lamenting for his own sake, yes, but he is also lamenting for God's sake, crying out for God to demonstrate his faithfulness in the world. His lament, therefore, is a powerful expression of faith in the justice and sovereignty of God. And thus, even against all the evidence of his present experience of suffering and God-forsakenness, he clings to his God. And tomorrow night, We'll talk about how Job does the same thing, though in an even more radical way. As the psalmist's suffering intensifies, so do his requests, until they reach this crescendo in verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, do not be far off, come quickly to my aid. Verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. The psalmist is commanding God to come to his aid. As Rogop says, the character of God 
combined with the desperation of pain, pushes David to be bold. And similarly, Hebrews claims that because Jesus is a high priest who has suffered with us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you believe that? Do you rely on the Lord in times of trouble? Or do you turn elsewhere? To your spouse, your doctor, your financial advisor, politicians? There's nothing wrong with turning to any of those people for help though some issues will be more appropriate for your doctor than your financial advisor. But perhaps lament seems so foreign to us because we think that we can handle our problems on our own, or maybe with the help of some professional. Maybe we don't cry out to God because if we're honest, we don't really feel that we need him. But that's both short-sighted and nearsighted. It's short-sighted because the time will come when you will face something that no human helper is equal to. And if you haven't learned the language of lament, you'll enter this most difficult time in your life speechless. It's also nearsighted because even if you have been spared the type of suffering that seems too much to handle, it's still all around you. And if that wasn't clear to you before mid-March, it should be glaringly obvious now. So lament with others. Plead with the God who saves to deliver your brothers and sisters in this church, your neighbors, your nation. Mysteriously, God redeems the brokenness of this world through our prayers. So you have an opportunity to be an instrument in the hand of the Almighty. So watch him work. And when you face suffering yourself, you will have the words and the confidence in God's power to deliver so that you can begin your own lament. My God, my God. And that will mean something. So, with the camera zoomed in on the razor teeth and piercing horns of the psalmist's pain, right in the midst of this most desperate plea, God answers. And as often happens when God speaks, the world is transformed. Now, the camera zooms out, and it keeps on zooming out. If you've, ever, if you've ever seen that classic video called The Powers of Ten, which zooms out from a couple having a picnic to show the whole city, and then the whole country, and then the whole earth, and then the whole solar system, and then the whole universe, that's something like what the psalmist is attempting to accomplish in these final verses. So read with me again. Psalm 22, we're going to start in verse 21. You have answered me. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember 
and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Having experienced the Lord's deliverance from his terrifying ordeal, the psalmist begins by praising God to his brothers, then the congregation, then God's praise extends to all of Israel, then all who seek the Lord, verse 26, then all the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations, then even the dead, verse 29, and those yet to be born, verses 30 and 31. So when we read this psalm, we prove the truth of those final verses. Here, on the other side of the globe, almost three millennia later, the Lord's deliverance, the fact that he has done it, is being proclaimed. So perhaps these last verses aren't quite as hyperbolic as they might first appear to be, but it still seems a bit much for this ancient Israelite, even if he was King David, to proclaim that his divine deliverance is going to change the whole world for all time to come. And yet, a God who has the power to save and does, no matter how significant the deliverance, that does change everything. Just as the suffering in this psalm points forward to Christ's ultimate suffering, the way a broken world is transformed when the Lord vanquishes the psalmist's suffering points forward to the reality, the redemption of reality itself across time and space. People from all the families of the nations, people yet unborn, us in this church, even those watching over a live stream. And every time your lament turns to praise, you participate in this world-transforming process. Lament is an expression of personal suffering with cosmic implications. Just like the cross was personal suffering with cosmic implications, while voicing the pain in your soul or that of your neighbors to the God who saves, you are declaring the real truth about God and the world. Pain is real, but deliverance is realer. And though some may not experience it in this life, one day God will indeed make all things right. So suffering has the power either to unite or divide us like nothing else, with our neighbors, even with God. In the first part of the psalm, the sufferer is thoroughly isolated from previous generations who have experienced God's deliverance in a way that he has not, from the people who despise and mock him, from his enemies, even he feels from God. But at the end of the psalm, we see the opposite. The psalmist, through his suffering, is unified with all of humanity. And he hosts a meal where both the afflicted and the prosperous will eat and be satisfied. People from all the families of the earth join in praise of the Lord who saves. And we're about to take part in a meal like that. Christ invites all who have put their trust 
in his suffering for their sin and their hope in his victory over it in his resurrection to eat and be satisfied. The afflicted and the prosperous, all the families of the earth. And this meal points forward to that even greater banquet that he has prepared for us, a heavenly banquet at which people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will join in the praise of the risen lamb, where every tear will be finally wiped away and illness, anxiety, and injustice are washed away in the river of life. Let's pray. Our God, our God, why have you forsaken us? Why are you so far from saving those who groan from the pain of illness, the anxiety of financial insecurity, the oppression of racial injustice? Yet we know that you are holy, enthroned on the praises we, your people, continue to sing. We believe that you have rescued those who have cried out to you in the past. Trusting you to deliver in the face of such challenges exposes us to mockery and shame. Yet, you are the loving creator. You are the redeemer who has called us by name. Be not far from us, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many monsters surround us. One invisible enemy ravages our bodies and physically separates us from one another. Another unseen foe poisons our minds and divides us even more devastatingly. When we see the suffering of others, our anxiety drowns either our care for them or our trust in you. We are exhausted. In Christ, you have answered us. You have rescued us from fear. For we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will praise your name. Even now, we will join that great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Though we don't know when we will experience it, we know that suffering and death are defeated, that viruses and poverty and injustice are defeated. We believe that you have done it. It is finished. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.